Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Psalm 17, a prayer of David. Hear me, Lord, my pleas just, listen to my cry. Hear my prayer, it does not rise from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from you, may your eyes see what is right. Though you probe my heart, though you examine me at night and test me, you will find that I have planned no evil. My mouth has not transgressed. Though people try to bribe me, I have kept myself from the ways of the violent through what your lips have commanded. My steps have held to your paths. My feet have not stumbled. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love, you who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. I'm the wicked who are out to destroy me from my mortal enemies who surround me. They close up their callous hearts, and they, their mouths speak with arrogance. They have tracked me down. They now surround me with, their, with eyes alert to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a fierce lion crouching in cover. Rise up, Lord. Confront them. Bring them down. Would your sword rescue me from the wicked? By your hand, save me from such people, Lord from those of this world whose reward is in this life. May what you have stored up for the wicked fill their bellies. May their children gorge themselves on it, and may there be leftovers for their little ones. As for me, I will be vindicated and will see your face. When I awake, I will be satisfied with seeing your likeness. Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. We are beginning our summer series today, right now. And we're going to be in the summer series all the way up through Labor Day. And the title for this series is How to Pray. Because we want to use these summer months focusing on how do we grow? How do we get closer to God? How do we live a fearless life? And we're bringing that up because the past series that we just got, came out of, Hebrews 11, we saw how to live in fearful times. But the book of Psalms is more about how to cultivate that fear, fearlessness. And I think what it tries to get us is only if you know how to pray, only if you know how to sit with him and experience him and behold him and draw near to him, not just in what he's done in your past, but what he's doing presently and what he'll do in the future. Only if you live daily with that presence of mind, will you be able to get through anything. And so what Psalms gives us is it tells us how God would like us to pray. Let's get into this particular psalm, Psalm 17, because this is a prayer of David, and he is surrounded by danger. He feels in danger, and he's praying with urgency. So if we look at the petitions that he gives, we can look into our own urgency and what petitions we can give. And I think today's text breaks down really nicely. It's, it breaks down into four parts, 15 verses, and here's how we're going to look at them. One, how to pray to get a clear conscience. Two, how to pray for changes in you, three, how to pray for changes outside of you, 
and then four, how to pray to actually really know him. I'll say it again. Prayer for a clear conscience, prayer for changes in you, prayer for changes outside of you, and then how do we pray to actually really know him? So first, how do we pray to get a clear conscience? And I think what this text is going to tell us is that before you can pray well, in fact, your prayers will go nowhere unless you have a clean conscience. And David spends the first six verses, which is something that he, he does a lot, actually, in, in the Psalms, trying to make an argument for his innocence. He's spending time to say, here's why I can even approach you in the first place, God, so that I can bring you my pleas that, that are right and good. So if you go to verse one, he actually says just that. He says, my pleas are right and good. Listen to my cries. Why? One, for there is no deceit. Verse one, right? Verse three, you can examine my heart and there's, quote, no planned evil. Four, my mouth has not transgressed. If you go to verse four, it says, I've kept myself from violent ways. Uh, my feet have not stumbled. And then if you go to verse six, he, he repeats verse one and he basically says, that's why I can call on you to hear my prayer. It's a very you know typical uh, Hebrew way to bracket his whole argument in the first place. Now, the problem is, is that we as modern readers, we get a little uneasy when we read this, if we're honest with ourselves. And the reason why is because when we're introspective, when we look inside, when we uh, just do a little bit of digging, I don't think very many of us would feel so bold to say that our thoughts are righteous and that we have not stumbled. I mean, I don't think we, very many of us would dare say that we've never, that we have not planned any evil and to claim that kind of innocence. In fact, it particularly bothers us because we have texts in the Bible, Romans 3, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know, the arc of humanity is to do planned evil. And then look at David's particular life. We know for a fact that he has planned evil. He purposefully put Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, on the front lines of a battle so that he would die so that David could take Bathsheba as his own wife. And so we know he's messed up. So how, how could he say this? It makes us kind of confused and we want to know how we can take this text seriously. And I think the answer is this. You have to do some sleuth work. You have to look and see that David is not actually claiming innocence from every aspect of life. He's looking for, in verse 2, he's looking for a vindication. But it's a very particular vindication in regards to an accusation that's been leveraged against him in verse 4. That, he, that uh, it says that the people tried to bribe him and he's saying, I didn't do it. So this seems to be actually a reference particularly to his kingship. That David as a ruler, as a king, he's saying, I have ruled without any corruption. That, and if there is corruption, I've weeded it out, I've worked on it. And so he feels like he can say these things. He can come as a clear, with a clear conscience as a ruler. That he can basically be bold and approach God later on in the Psalms with petitions because of this. And so the lesson for you and, and me is that we won't be able to pray well unless we too have a clean conscience. And I think you can only get that in two particular ways. You either, one, have to do what is right, or two, if you do what is wrong, confess it. Weed it out like David. Bring it up. Repent from the bowels of your, your soul. Bring it to him, and then you can approach him with a clean conscience. So you're going to mess up. The Bible actually doesn't expect that you won't. Psalm 130, you know, the psalmist says, Oh Lord, if you counted all iniquities, who could stand? And so th think about it. Uh, 
if you're a father or a mother and you overwork, you're not home enough with your kids and you feel kind of guilty, you feel your conscience is, is pricked. How do you get rid of it? How do you fix that? Well, one, you either do what is right or two, when you do what is wrong, confess it and admit it and change. Or you know, same thing if you're a student or, you know, you have a job and you're not doing what that job requires. The way to keep a clear conscience is to either do what is right or admit and repent. Then you can approach God. And that you, you, you and I won't be able to pray these bold prayers unless you can get to a place like David in these first six verses where he has a clean conscience. And that means if there's an area of your life right now where there's a problem, you won't have a good prayer life unless you can voice that problem and repent of that problem. Like how could you come to God and ask him for things if you can't go to God with your things? That's the question. See, the Bible's not actually asking us to be without sin. The Bible's saying, what do you do? And are you willing to admit when you find that sin, when you see it? I think there's actually been some recent studies that just even in the past couple of years, guilt of Americans has skyrocketed. Feel more guilty now than we have even in the past 10 years. And some of the researchers have pointed out that secular society, secular Western society, when it was trying to get rid of its Judeo-Christian morality, um, originally went to sort of a relativism. It said, you know what? Who's to say what's true? Who's to say what is right and wrong? Right? The, it, guilt, if you feel guilt, you need to cast it away. Guilt was what was wrong with the world. This is what Freud was saying. This is what the therapeutic revolution was basically getting at, that we need to unshackle ourselves from, from guilt. What's so interesting, though, is secular society, just let's just say in the past five years or so, has brought guilt back. What do you think cancel culture is? What do you think um, just the raging on social media? It's saying, no, there is wrong. There is ways that, ways that people should and shouldn't act. So we've actually brought it back. Um, but what we haven't brought back is ways to actually reconcile and forgive. In other words, we brought back um, the morality of religion. We haven't brought back the solutions, which is so interesting because I think Christianity actually ha- still has those solutions built in. Go to 1 John 1, 8, and 9. If you can memorize it, you should. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But, here's the but, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So what what the writer there is saying is the only wrong that you could possibly have is to just not admit that you do wrong. But if you confess, then there's forgiveness. This is why Romans 8 is such a balm. The writer can actually say, it's so sweet, that there is now no... In Jesus, there is now no condemnation for those who are in him. So many of us, I think what's going on is we're walking around with this baggage, with this baggage, this baggage of shame and guilt, and it's weighing down us down, and we don't want to unload it. We can't. We don't know how. But you can't pray well unless you can have that clear conscience. When I was working with uh, college students, this is years ago, there was a, a young woman who in high school, her brother overdosed and died. And so when she got to college, she had this incredible burden to do things right, to be the perfect daughter, to, to um, you know, bear up all the expectations that the parents had. 
I used to sit with her and I would say every few weeks, I would try to say, and other people did too, you know, you know, you don't have to carry what you think you have to carry right now. That this doesn't have to be your fate. This doesn't have to be your life. You don't have to carry that guilt with you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be put together. Christianity gives us an entire identity shift where we don't have to carry what we think we have to carry anymore. And when she finally got that, when, when she finally let that affect her, I mean, that's when the tears just started coming down in her and me. Because why? We're not just talking about just confessing the dark places inside of you. No, I'm saying there's whole aspects of your identity of what you think and how you think you're supposed to live about our very nature that we need to let go and confess. And we've already been forgiven, First John says. And if you did, you wouldn't just have a clear conscience. You'd be able to pray big, bold prayers. Now, there's some of you out there going, but, but, but admitting is not just enough. You have to actually have to change. And the answer is yes, of course. That if I promise not uh, to, to curse anymore, if I say, you know what? No more cursing. Um, and I admit it and I repent it and I let it go. But then I keep cursing. If I confess, but there's no change over time, over time, that clear conscience will go away. It'll be gone. Because why? You're not actually really repenting. And if you're not really repenting, then how can God listen to you if you can't even acknowledge your sin? See, this is what's so important is that while we don't earn our salvation, right? It's possible that over time we don't really want that salvation. And so what David is saying here, he's saying, I can boldly go. I can boldly ask and pray. I can have a clear conscience. And you too, you can too. If you just admit, if you're willing to change, stop dragging your feet. Come clean. And when you disclosed everything, since you've hid nothing, you can now come with your petitions and pleas. How to pray? You can't pray unless you first seek a clear conscience. That's number one. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 1030 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Now, number two. Secondly, after David establishes his clear conscience as the grounds for what he can ask for, what does he ask for? What's so interesting here is he doesn't actually begin with his pleas. He doesn't begin with petitions. He doesn't say, take these hardships away from me. Oh, Lord, change my circumstances. That's not what he does next. Right? This might be the most important thing you get from this text. That if you're going to pray well, what does he ask for first? The very first thing in verse 7 is he says, Show me the wonders of your love. Hmm. And then, what does he say? You are my Savior. You save. 
And then what? You are my refuge. Then what? Keep me as the apple of your eye. Now, these are curious phrases, right? These are all essentially, they boil down to, let me know, let me delight in how much you delight in me. That's what it is. Even verses 9 through 12, which talks about his enemies, he's really asking for protection. He particularly wants to know that God wants to and will protect him. See, what's going on here? He's saying, I think, more than anything that he needs, he needs to think and meditate and delight in how much God himself thinks and meditates and delights in us. And so to pray well, before you pray for a change in your circumstances, pray for a change in you. That he's asking to experience God. He's asking to know God. In fact, the literal translation of verse 7 is, make your love wonderful to me. He wants to change his heart before he sees a change in the world's heart. He's praying for internal change before he's praying external change, which I think is actually pretty wise. If you think about it, think about the prayers that you that you will pray about outside the world. You really don't know, right? You might want to pray for a new job, but is a new job actually the best thing that you could be praying for right now? Maybe a new job would be the worst thing for you. Should I live in the city? Should I not live in the city? Should I be here? And I mean, to be honest, we don't always necessarily know what we most need. That maybe what you want isn't what you should really want right now. That'd be the worst thing for you. So if if something is causing you fear or anger or, or um, anxiety right now, there's actually two sides to it. There's the thing itself, the problem itself that's causing you that, but then there's your response to that problem. What if you knew more today than you did yesterday of God's love for you? What if his delight in you was more a reality to you than you thought? That you sought for that first, that you, that you let that change you, remembering his delight in you, remembering his love in you. Your circumstances haven't changed one bit. All those problems out there, they're still there. But I bet you your response to them would change. You, you thought it was something you couldn't handle, now you can handle it. You, you thought it was insurmountable, now it is. You thought it was something that was going to end you, now it isn't. Right? David, in each one of these phrases, go through them as much as you can. You are wonderful. You are, you love me. You save. You're my refuge. If you, um, you know, did, did some analysis, uh, picked up some commentaries, you'll find out that those phrases are actually all allusions to the song of Moses in Exodus 15, where Moses is saying these statements in relationship to God, because God has fulfilled his promises that, um, he's faithful to his people. And so what David is trying to do is he's trying to remember He's saying, hey, in the past, God has been faithful. He has fulfilled those promises. And if he's done it then, then somehow, in some way, even when everything looks dark, even when the whole world is falling apart in my life right now, I know that he will save me too. That's the assurance that he's getting. And so if you want to pray well, if you want to live fearless lives, seek more a change in you before a change in circumstances. Remember his promises. Remember his character. Remember his nature. So I can get really practical. Let's say you're being criticized right now. Let's say at work or maybe in your personal relationships, your, your character is being attacked. It's being assassinated. Show me the wonders of your love, Lord. 
Let that love enthrall me. Let, 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 let that impact me more. Those criticisms from them are still going to be there with you tomorrow. But you know what? If his love was more well known to you, those criticisms don't hurt in the same way that they did then. They just don't. Right? Last week we were looking at Hebrews 12 and we saw that if you're going to be able to overcome this fearful world, overcome the suffering of this world, how? The writer there in verse 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, right? But how could Jesus do it? It says, but for the joy set before him. And what we figured out was, what did Jesus have that he didn't have? He had the universe. He had the Father's love. He had all the riches and splendor and creation was at his fingertips. But you know what he didn't have? There's only one thing he didn't have. He didn't have you. He didn't have you. He delights so much in you that you can now delight in him. That's it. Um, in the Atlantic, just this past week, Arthur Brooks, uh, Harvard professor, I believe, um, he says that he notes that fear and stress is up. This is not surprising. Not, not just this year. It's been in the past few decades. This past year, it's been particularly up. 83% of an APA survey says 83 is a massive number of individuals in America have reported that they are stressed and fearful for America in the future. And so this stress is up. But what he points out in this Atlantic article is that the problem is that there's not, there's not necessarily more objective things to be afraid of. Actually, we live in a safer world, by and large, than ever before. And so the problem is not too much fear. What well, the problem is, is he points out, it's, it's not enough love. That the statistics are showing that we're actually lonelier than ever. And that loneliness means we feel less love. And when we feel less love, we actually feel more fear. And that's why fear is up. And so if the secular world even knows this and understands that love casts out fear among humans, imagine if we felt the joy and love and delight of the Lord of the universe. The Bible says this, right? Perfect love does cast out fear. And it would not change your circumstances one bit, but you know what it would do? It would change how you relate and dealt with them and handled those circumstances. And that switch, it's in that switch that the change would truly make you and me fearless. Okay, now quickly, thirdly, right? How should we then pray for changes outside of you? Only after you have a clear conscience, only after you pray for changes inside of you, then you can go to God, right? And But now you won't pray. You won't just say, Lord God, get me a new job. No, you know, you know what you would start praying? If you did these first two steps, you would say, you know what? He may or may not get me a new job, but I pray, Lord, put me in a position that in whatever job I potentially have, I get or I don't get, that I would actually get more of you. That I would delight more in you and know you better. See, hopefully you see the difference there. Now, some of you might point, back into the text and say, wait a second, but what does David do with this newfound delight? It looks like in verse 14, he's asking for the fullness of God's judgment to be poured out on his enemies. And actually it feels at first kind of vindictive and harsh. But why would, you know, now that he know, you know, knows that change inside of him, why is he now praying for this? To, um, to squash his enemies. And the answer is, again, you have to re remember, David is praying through a lens of his kingship. These are people who have been attacking his character to try to overthrow him and therefore overthrow the kingdom. And so he's not talking as an individual like you and I do. 
he's thinking of himself at, in a, in a, as a monarch that if he is overthrown, then his people will be, and his people will be enslaved. And so, of course, he knows about forgiveness. He has lots of psalms about that. He's talking about as a king to try to care for his people. But also think about what he's really asking for. Go to verse 14. And all he's saying is, he's saying, God, give these people what they want. Right? What they want is the world. And imagine if you could have the whole world but not have God. That would be judgment enough. Right? If you decide, what this text is saying is, if you decide to live for something more than God, and if it's in this world, then you know what? That's all you'll get. If all you want is money, then all money, all you're going to get is money. If all you're going to live for is a claim, then all you'll have is a claim. And you know what? If that's all you have, it won't be enough. Because what you really want is him. It's what you're built for. It's what you desire. It's what you really need. And so please, what, he, what David is saying, don't pray for more stuff. More stuff is not going to be enough. Don't pray. Unless it's more of him, it won't work. And therefore, the prayers, if you rooted in the prayer, prayer for changes in you, your prayers for outside of you will be different too. So let me try to recap. Pray for uh, a change in conscience. Pray for a change in you. Then pray for a change outside of you. And then lastly, then how can we really finally pray to know him? How might that actually happen in us? David was a great king. And even though he was a great person, I actually still think he he didn't. He doesn't know what we know on the side of the cross. That we now actually can pray for people who hurt us and do our enemies who do want to attack us, who are the worst. Because we have something that David didn't have. We have ultimate hope. Notice in verse 15, David had hope that the reason why he was able to live a fearless life is because he roots his prayer in the knowledge that eventually everything's going to be put right. This is what I love about verse 15. It's a great phrase. As for me, I will get to see your face when I awake. That's what he says. And I'll be satisfied with your likeness. And you say, well, how does he know that? He probably is alluding to Moses again here, that Moses asked to see the Lord's face in Exodus, I think it's 33. And God said, no, you can't see my face. It will kill you. And so David is saying, yeah, but that's what we need. And so maybe after death, when I awake, which is actually an allusion to a resurrection, maybe then I'll finally see it. See, he somehow knew that's what he ultimately needed. And that was going to give him hope. That when I awake, somehow he vaguely knew the resurrection was going to happen to live again. But he didn't have that full assurance. Not what we have. We have a greater hope because we actually know that resurrection is assured because Jesus was raised from the dead. You see, the only reason that you can have a clear conscience, the only reason that he's going to hear your prayer, the only reason that you can be sure that he is going to change, and and this isn't some pipe dream, is because Jesus rose from the dead. Which means that you will too. That Jesus on the cross, you know, he quoted Psalms, right? He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God turned away his face. Jesus took that exclusion for us. So now when we read John 1, what does it say? We behold his face full of grace and truth. Now 2 Corinthians 4, we have the light, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so the only reason that prayer works for us, the only reason we, that we're not just talking to ourselves is because I will see God when I awake. I know it. 
Jesus was, died and rose from the dead, and that means we will die and rise from the dead as well. Crave his face. Crave his presence. David knew that you and I will have a bad conscience if we actually aren't doing what we should do, but now you and I, we can have a clear conscience even when we aren't. Even when we don't perfectly repent because we are loved by Jesus. John Calvin, uh, in a prayer that personally has meant a lot to my family right now, uh, puts this really well. And it's one of those prayers that the more you read it, the more you get out of it. Let me read it to you. It says this, As I lay down in sleep and rose this morning only by your grace, keep me now in joyful, lively remembrance that whatever happens, I will someday know my final rising. Because Jesus lay down in death for me and rose for my justification. Let me read that to you again. As I lay down in sleep and rose this morning only by your grace, keep me now in joyful, lively remembrance that whatever happens, I will someday know my final rising. Because Jesus lay down in death for me. It is that hope. I pray that, that that would be your prayer every day, that every day would be a joyful, lively remembrance that I will know my final rising. That if you could live into that final rising, if you let that be your joy and your abundance and your mirth and your wonder, that would transform you. It would transform our, all the hurts into healing, all the heartache into health. And then you could practice it. And then you could remind yourself, joy comes knowing how he delights in me and how he knows me and he loves me and he wants me. And now you're in. I know that you don't want to believe this. I know that, the, that you might think this might be too easy, but it's the hardest thing to do. It's not that you have to hide yourself anymore. The clear, clear conscience, confess freely, meditate, remember. And as you rejoice, the fire will flame, your hearts will burst with the love that there was this all along, that you don't have to go on just pure emotions. Go to his heart and emotions will come out of this. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. David knew that. Do you? Will you let his love, will you let his delight in you delight you? What are you not letting go right now? Do so. What aren't you remembering about, about him? His wondrous love is offered to you. It's found in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a important word. I pray that this fall, that we will delight, now this summer, but going forward, help us to delight in your delight in us. Help that be the centering moment in our lives that helps us live fearless life, a fearless life in fearful times. You offer that to us, give it to us now. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.